Well, in his book, Snappy Steeple Stories, great name for a book, Oren Arnold relates the following snappy story. He said, there was a man in Kansas whose house was blown away in a cyclone. The local preacher, seeing this as an opportunity, told the man, quote, punishment for sin is inevitable. Oh, really, said the man, and did you know that your house was blown away too? <laughs> well, responded the preacher, the Lord's ways are beyond understanding. Funny story, but it touches on an important point. We often wonder if our suffering is related to our sin. I'm convinced that that belief is woven into the human spirit, probably because we have an innate, an innate sense that God exists, and we have an innate sense of justice. And so when bad things, people often wonder did I do something to deserve this? might be something kind of small, like you bump your head against a, you know, an overhang, or you trip and fall, or maybe you have an argument with a loved one, or you get stuck in a horrific traffic jam, and you sit there and wonder, did I do something to deserve this? Or maybe it's a little more significant, like uh, losing a job or a serious illness, or even going beyond that to say a natural disaster like the cyclone, for instance. Are they a result of God's punishment? Ever wonder about those things? I know I do, quite often. I think it's a natural thing to wonder. And you might say, well, what does Scripture teach about this? Well, the book of Job really centers on this issue as Job and his three friends debate it for most of the book, don't they? Job is convinced that his suffering is not because of sin, while his friends are convinced that it is. And so what I want to do this morning is look at Job chapter 4, where one of his friends really clearly articulates his position. And then what I want to do is gather a bunch of biblical texts and make four points about our suffering and divine punishment. What I hope to give is, is kind of a thorough overview of this very important topic. And hopefully as we look at Job and as we look at other scriptures, it will kind of clear the air about this very significant thing that, as I said, we often wonder about, and really seeing what God's Word says helps us to understand the world that God has made and the things that we go through in our lives. Amen? There's always just great value in truth, isn't there? Just knowing the truth is valuable. And hopefully that will be a blessing for us today. So let me invite you to turn to Job chapter 4, page 418, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. While you're turning there, let me just recap what we've covered so far in Job. Just recall that Satan asserted that Job only loved God because of his many blessings like wealth and family. And if those things were taken away, then Job would curse or renounce his faith in God. And so God allows Satan to take away his wealth and his family, but yet Job still did not curse God. Satan allows, or God allows Satan to afflict Job's health, yet Job does not curse God. 
Now, after some time had passed, Job's friends came to visit him. You recall from last week, to comfort Job. And while they're in their midst, Job uttered this really passionate, frankly startling lament, wasn't it? How he bemoaned the day of his birth because of the incredible suffering that he was going through. And we looked at and saw how Job's cries were not of of unbelief, but of faith, because he knew God so well, and he was struggling to put these things together. It was exactly because he did believe in God, and he did know him so well, that he was wondering, what is going on here? And he looked to God alone for his answers, not from other people. But yet he did struggle, and he communicated that. And I didn't stress that well enough last week, that I wanted to communicate that it is okay to feel the way Job did, where there's just this deep agony in your spirit, and you communicate that to God. God can handle our our laments. But what I didn't communicate well enough is that God wants you to move from that place of deep despair to a place of deep trust. Does that make sense? Because you see, for example, with many of the lament psalms, there are like 50 or 60 of those. You look at those psalms, and they start with deep cries of anguish, But more often than not, I think about all of them except Psalm 88 end with a deep expression of trust. So that's where God wants us to end up, and it is where Job ends up eventually. He's not there yet, is he? He's definitely not there, and he is struggling. So so everybody there in chapter 4? All right, we're going to pick up with the speech of Eliphaz. He is one of Job's friends, and again... As we're entering into this second phase of the book, there's a whole bunch of these speeches, and they alternate between a friend of Job, and then Job responds, a friend, then Job. And they do this, all three friends give a speech, Job responds, and they do this three cycles all the way through chapter 31. All right? We're not going to look at all of these in detail at all, but I just want everyone to know kind of what the pattern is. And so Eliphaz is the first person to speak I think he does so because he's the leader. He's always mentioned first when they're listed. He's the first one to speak. And at the end, when God addresses all of three of the friends, he speaks to Eliphaz as kind of the representative. All right? So his speech, Eliphaz, goes all the way through chapter 5. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 11 because I think it really encapsulates what he is trying to communicate so very well, his view of our suffering and God's punishment. All right? So... Chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made him, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever excuse me, who that was ever innocent ever perished, or were, where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the voice, excuse me, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So Eliphaz 
he speaks respectfully to Job, right? When he starts off there, he acknowledges that Job is a man of integrity, that he's helped other people. But then, after he's kind of done with the niceties, he breaks out really his thesis statement, what he's trying to drive at. And go back with me to verses 7 to 9, because this is really the, what the rest of the friends say. This is what he's communicating. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So according to Eliphaz, righteous people do not die prematurely. So instead of saying only the good die young, he would say only the old, or excuse me, only the good die old, right? Likewise, he would say those who sin do suffer, and it is God's judgment that carries it out. And he kind of tries to substantiate his point by pointing at nature there, and it's a little bit unclear, but what I think he's getting at is that there's a natural law within nature that things inevitably perish, right? And so even the powerful lion must obey the laws of nature and will perish. Likewise, Job is not above the moral law of God, if you will, and he too, if he sins, he will suffer just like everyone else. So overall, Eliphaz and his friends believe that suffering, get this, is always proportionate to our sin. Suffering is always proportionate to our sin. And that is his view, it's the view of his friends, and it's what appears all throughout these speeches in different capacities. And so in their eyes, Job's suffering must be caused by his sin. However, Job is not convinced that they are right. So the question is, well, then who is right? Got this debate going on between them. So let me stop and just what I want to do is make four points that we've seen from this passage and other passages about suffering and divine punishment. Suffering and divine punishment. I want you to listen closely to these four points. This is, this is going to be a hard message, right? This isn't something that's just easy to throw out there. That's why I'm going on vacation next week. <laughs> Roll the grenade and then take off. No, seriously, I've, this was planned out. But it's a tough pass. These are tough messages that we're getting across here, tough points. And I want everybody to come to the Word of God with a sense of humility, teachability, and say, Lord, help me to understand your Word and have faith to believe it, even if it stretches and challenges me. So the first point is that God is the judge of all humanity. God is the judge of all humanity. He is the creator. Consequently, he has the right to judge us. It is his universe, not ours. He makes the rules. And so God not only has the right to judge, but he must judge. Justice is inherent to God's character. It is not a defect. He can't sweep things under the rug and still be God, can he? And so because he's perfectly just, God will judge sin. And so Psalm 11 says, God is a righteous ju judge and a God who feels indignation every day. He feels in indignation because as he looks out at the world, every day there's this constant rebellion by his creatures, isn't there? And so we can resist it all we want. 
We may not like it, and I know for many people in our culture, this message goes over like a lead balloon. But it is what the Bible teaches, is that God is the judge of all humanity. And Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God is the judge of all humanity. That's the foundation. Do you accept that? I hope you do, because if you don't, really, you might as well leave and just check out, because the next three points won't matter to you. But I hope they will, because hopefully you'll see that it all fits together. All right? Quick time out. Let me just take a quick footnote about something that I wanted to bring up just in passing. The belief in karma seems to be gaining a lot of popularity in our culture. Do you guys know what karma is? Well, good. We'll help you. Karma is a key concept found in, in different forms of Hindu and, belief, Hindu and Buddhist belief systems. Karma is the principle that good actions lead to good results. Bad actions lead to bad results. It, it's cause and effect, or you reap what you sow. Now, we have just seen that there is something very truthful to that principle, right? Of you doing something, and many times there are repercussions, good or bad, for what you do. But what I wanted to point out to everyone here today is that karma is an impersonal process. Impersonal process. And if you stop to think about it, it doesn't make any sense. How can an impersonal process reward or uh, punish people? Don't you need a personality behind that to do that? And so the whole notion begs this idea of a creator God, right? So though there's a sense of truth in it, it's, it's without a foundation. It needs a creator God who rules the universe. So the next time you talk to somebody and you're having a conversation and they mention karma, ask them, who is it that is actually guiding the karma? It's a great entryway into a conversation about the Lord, I think. All right, number two. God punishes temporally. What I mean by that is that God sends judgment in our lives because of sin. Sometimes people have a hard time accepting this reality, even Christians. But again, this is what Scripture teaches. God does not always wait till the end of time. Our sin stirs, stirs God to punish, and thus we suffer. And God primarily uses natural processes. He primarily uses natural processes, like the weather or human agents, to bring this about. Or He allows Satan and demons to affect us. Sometimes this happens on an individual level where our sin causes suffering within our spirits as we're just burdened by guilt and shame and bitterness and unforgiveness and anger and so forth. I would see that as divine punishment. Or sin causes suffering within our relationships as they are damaged or as they are ended by them. Our sin causes suffering within our own bodies, stress and anxiety, gluttony, whatever, you name it. This, and this makes sense, doesn't it? Because we're body-spirit units, aren't we? And so our body affects our spirits, and our spirits affect our bodies. David says in Psalm 32, 3, For when I kept silent, speaking about his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David says, look, when I was in sin, and I didn't confess that, it was affecting my body, who I was. And let me just give a specific example that you see played out in Scripture, really to drive this point home. Proverbs 6, 
27 to 28 says, Can a man take fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? It's talking about adultery. In verses 32 to 33 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped out. So God will give someone over to these, these sort of natural processes, such as huge marital problems, right? Even divorce, which then will have consequences on children and financial woes, doesn't it? Physically, people can then get sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, uh, abortion, and so forth. Adultery can lead to a loss of friends and extended family. Adultery can lead to a loss of employment. Sometimes people are so affected by it that they can't even keep their job. Or if they're a public figure, they have to resign because of the scandal, right? So in light of this, doesn't it make sense when Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He doesn't just wait till the end of time. So he does this on individual levels. And follow with me here, he also does it on corporate levels. Bigger picture. Because of the great evil of humanity, God sent the flood of Noah. With the nation of Israel, part of its covenant that was woven into the very fabric of the covenant was blessings if they obeyed and uh, punishment if they disobeyed. You can read about these in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27, 28. Some of those judgments included disease, natural disasters, and even human invasions. And eventually, after just centuries and centuries of warnings, God gave them over, didn't they? And they were invaded by the Babylonians, and they took many of them back to Babylon in exile. And don't just think that was a new t- uh, an Old Testament thing. Jesus comes along, and he says that because of their rejection of him that the city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and the temple as well. It was punishment. And it's not just Israel. It's Gentile nations too. Read Amos. Read Isaiah. Their Gentile nations suffer because of their own sin. Now I need to stress, God is not guilty of evil in in bringing these retributions and punishments. It's the result of our rebellion. He has a right to judge his creatures if he so chooses. And so sometimes he does in our present day. And I tread lightly when saying this, but yes, I do think that there's a biblical basis in seeing events outside of Scripture, moving past Scripture, as divine punishment. You may not agree, but I I think just based on what you see with Israel, the Gentiles, and all these things that are going on here. So natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, I would say that was probably in some form divine punishment. Not because they were worse than everyone else. We'll get to that. Likewise with human acts. Look at the Civil War. People wonder, was this God's judgment on the nation because of the evil of slavery? Well, Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, said the war was God's punishment on the nation. I would agree. Now, please don't misunderstand me, because that can be really taken out of context, what I just said. 
There are other reasons why God allows these things to happen. And that's a mistake people say, oh, well, Katrina hit New Orleans because there's a lot of sin there, and that explains it all. No, it doesn't explain it all. It's not the full picture. But to be biblically faithful, I think it is part of the picture. So, going back to Job. So far, Job and his friends would agree with what has been discussed, my point. They would say, yes, God is the judge of all humanity. God punishes temporally. He does do that. But here's where they're going to part ways, my third point. God's temporal punishment is not always proportional to our sin. God's temporal punishment is not always proportional to our sin. Job's friends thought that a person's troubles were the result of God punishing sin. But Scripture teaches that suffering sometimes exceeds what is the case in that individual's life. It goes beyond that particular sin that was happening in their lives. Job is exhibit A, right? We saw the first two chapters where he is suffering not because of something that he did specifically, right? So there is more to the picture in some cases. We have to keep that in mind. Job's friends are simply wrong to say that you are suffering simply because of your sin. There are other reasons, and Jesus affirms this reality. Remember in John chapter 9, where he and his disciples encounter a blind man who was begging, and the disciples ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, they assumed that since this man was born blind, either he was a sinner or that his parents were sinners, and somehow it affected him. Jesus declares that it was neither in this case. So you can't always make that assumption. And we have to keep that in mind. That was the error of Job's friends. Because we've all known godly people who experience just incredible hardships while the godly person next to them doesn't seem to go through that, do they? So it's not necessarily this this tit-for-tat thing. And likewise, sometimes suffering is less than people deserve. You look out into the world and sometimes people hardly suffer at all compared to what they do in this lifetime. Job points this out a little bit later in Job 21. He says, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. I think we've all in our lives would look at people that we know who want nothing to do with God. And yet, they don't experience anything particularly bad, and they live a long life. The famous uh, Chinese leader, Mao Zedong, he was probably the worst killer of the 20th century, worse than Hitler, worse than Stalin. He killed killed tens of millions of his own countrymen. One, One estimate I read said 65 million people. And he fiercely persecuted the church. Yet Mao lived to be 82 years old and died in, in, you know, I didn't study his death in great detail, but he said he died from complications in Parkinson's disease. He was still in power. So he died in relative peace. And you say, how in the world, right? That's right. How in the world? And on the flip side, I would look at someone like Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest minds America has ever produced, the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. He was instrumental in the Great Awakening that just transformed our nation. 
He dies at the age of 54 because of a smallpox inoculation. He had just assumed the presidency of Princeton and was set to make a tremendous impact. Why could not, if he had had another 30 years of churning out theological things that would have shaped and blessed the church in profound ways, why did he have to die of a smallpox inoculation at the age of 54? God's temporal punishment is not always proportional to sin. And that leads to my fourth point. God's final punishment is, is proportional to our sin. On Judgment Day, everything will come clear. Every sin will be accounted for. Matthew 16, 27, Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Did you hear those sober words? So if we're believers, we're saved not because of our works, but we are rewarded by our works, right? What we have done in this life. And if we are unbelievers, we'll be punished according to our deeds. And there is just this, uh, this, this very close case there. No one's going to escape. You might escape in this lifetime by a crooked judge or a, an incompetent lawyer or a technical fallout or problem that goes on in a court case, but there will be none of that in heaven. No one escapes the final judgment. Revelation 20, 11 to 12, speaks of the final judgment this way. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his present earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, speaking of being before Christ. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had In other words, there is in heaven a record of every single thought, deed, word that we have ever done. And it will all be disclosed one day. And every sin will receive a proper punishment. And the worse the sin, the worse the punishment. Friends, Judgment Day is a day to avoid at all costs. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So let me close by pointing to two things about Jesus and divine punishment. As I said, whenever we're reading Job, I want us to always keep in mind what Jesus has said and done to help fulfill these things that we're understanding. Jesus really makes two helpful contributions to our topic today. First, Jesus teaches that, the, that these temporal punishments should lead to repentance. These temporal punishments should lead us to repentance. I want you to learn, look real quickly with, with me to Luke chapter 13. Very fascinating and interesting passage about Jesus and this very topic. I wish it was a little bit longer, but it's only five verses, but it's very fascinating. Luke chapter 13, page 872. It says, there were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans who, whose blood Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? 
No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So in this passage, people come to Jesus and ask him about this recent tragedy where Pontius Pilate slaughtered some of these Galileans who had gone to the temple to make some sacrifices, totally unjustified. And then Jesus brings up a second tragedy where this tower in Siloam fell and killed 18 people. So we see in these two cases both a natural disaster, right? The tower falling wasn't anybody's fault. And then we see what was human evil, Pontius Pilate doing this stuff. And so Jesus takes these things and warns of a worse fate than dying in a tragedy. He says that he warns them about perishing. He's not talking about physical perishing because we're all going to die. His warning would make no sense if he's just talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death, which Jesus and the apostles, when they talk about this, refers to our separation from God as a result of our sin. The Bible calls this death, spiritual death. And if it doesn't change by the time we die, then we are eternally separated from God. And so Jesus says that our response should be that as we see these acts of divine punishment, we should realize that these events are a snapshot of the final judgment. And we should be stirred to repent to avoid His wrath. So in other words, God uses these events or is intending to use these events that when we see them, we are reminded of who we are and that we should be stirred to make sure that we are right with God and that we repent of our sin. And often this is the case. You look at a calamity like 9-11 and people were just flooding into churches and many people turned to Christ because they were overwhelmed by what they saw. And it caused them to look upward. In 2007, a, a Minneapolis bridge collapsed, killing 13 people. Do you guys remember that? At the time, John Piper was pastoring a church that was actually within eyesight of the bridge. He's since retired. And he actually drove over the bridge uh, the night before it collapsed. And on the day that it collapsed, he and his family were reading from their devotional, and they were actually, the very passage they were scheduled to read was Luke 13. No coincidence there. And I wanted to share some insights that he related about this bridge collapsing in Minneapolis in light of Luke 13. And he says this, The meaning of the collapse of this bridge is that John Piper is a sinner and should repent or forfeit his life forever. That means I should turn from the silly preoccupations of my life and focus my mind's attention and my heart's affection on God and embrace Jesus Christ as my only hope for the forgiveness of my sins and the hope of eternal life. That is God's message in the collapse of this bridge. That is his most merciful message. There is still time to turn from sin and unbelief and destruction for those who live. If we could see the eternal calamity from which... He is offering escape. We would hear this as the most important message in the world. And this leads to the second contribution Jesus makes to this whole discussion of our suffering and God's punishment. 
is that Jesus is the one who suffered divine punishment for us. Jesus Himself took upon our punishment, our punishment for our deeds, our thoughts, our words. He endured that on the cross. And yes, friends, I do think He endured that for each believer. His sacrifice wasn't just a generic sacrifice, but I think it was on behalf of each person who trusts in Christ. So He died for all the sins, sins and deeds and thoughts and words that I will ever commit. That is staggering. And then multiply that out by all of the believers before Christ and after Christ. And it's overwhelming to think about what he endured on our behalf, isn't it? And it's no wonder that when he was in Gethsemane, he was so distraught because he knew that he was about to step into our place and to endure what we should rightfully endure for eternal punishment. He endured that on the cross. Punishment is what you and I deserve, but grace is what we receive, friends. And it's all because of Christ. It's not because of our good works. It's because of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was regarded as sin, even though He was sinless. And we regard it as righteous, even though we are sinful. Does that not blow your mind about this vision of Jesus? He's the creator. He's the judge, but yet he steps down and goes to that cross as our suffering Savior. He took the punishment for you and I. We would just believe it anyway. Let me just close with a wonderful illustration. Have you ever heard of Henry Ironside? Uh, poignant, shared a poignant story that he heard as a youth. I thought it was really powerful. He says, quote, It was of pioneers who were making their way across one of the central states to a distance, distant place that had been opened up for homesteading. They traveled in covered wagons drawn by oxen, and progress was necessarily slow. One day they were horrified to note a long line of smoke in the west, stretching for miles across the prairie, and soon it was evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and coming toward them rapidly. They had crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to go back to that before the flames would be upon them. One man only seemed to have understanding as to what could be done. He gave the command to set fire to the grass behind them. Then when a space was burned over, the whole company moved back upon it. As the flames roared on toward them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror, Are you sure we shall not be burned up? The leader replied, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. Ironside goes on to say, The fires of God's judgment burned themselves out on him, Christ. And all who are in Christ are safe forever, for they are now standing where the fire has been. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to approach your word with humility. And we know that we've 
read and spoken of things today that make us uncomfortable, that challenge us and stretch us. But Lord, you want us to see you as you are. Your word says in Psalm 50 that you are not, that you are not like us. We try to imagine you like ourselves, but you're not. And your holiness and justice is something we cannot fathom because of who we are. And so, Lord, as we have talked about this very interesting and difficult topic of our suffering and your punishment, Lord, we want to remember these things that we have heard today to balance them properly, to remember that you are a God who judges. Remember that sometimes you do send these things in our lives. But yet we can't always look at the situation and say, that's exactly because of what they've done or because I have done. Let us learn from the mistakes of Job's friends. And Lord, as we look at this world, we also take comfort in knowing that one day everything will come clean. No one will get away for this, that, or the other. And that's also a scary thought for us. Because if it wasn't for Jesus, we would stand condemned. But thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you were willing to absorb the fire on our behalf. You stood in the fire's place so that we could go free. And Lord, my prayer today is that if someone who is here, that today would be the day they turn to you. They would see that it is not in their strength. It is not in their good works. It is not in their church attendance, Lord. But it's simply in trusting Jesus. Because we've all done things that deserve punishment, but only Jesus can wash clean the things that we've done. And oh, how he washes them all away, past, present, and future. Lord, I pray they would call upon your name today in faith and truth. And be new creatures in Christ. Jesus' name we ask this. All God's people said, Amen.